Tom Archibald, thank you. Thanks for, for talking with me um, here today. Really appreciate your time. Could, could you take a moment, just kind of do like a brief uh, uh, intro overview, kind of your background and, and your, uh, how evaluation plays its role in, in, in your life? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And first, thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm honored and, and grateful for this chance to get to share some thoughts on evaluation. Um, so I'm currently an associate professor and extension specialist at Virginia Tech in the Department of Agricultural Leadership and Community Education, uh, which is in our ag school. So here I teach one graduate course on evaluation, and I also support the Virginia Cooperative Extension System, uh, largely focused on evaluation capacity building, which is really my, my true passion, um, helping people who don't think of themselves as evaluators to, to gain more evaluation capacity, especially evaluative thinking, uh, but also those technical skills necessary to evaluate their own programs. And I also do research on evaluation um, in various contexts. Uh, outside of evaluation, I'm also involved in various community education programs, um, especially focused on positive youth development. I'm the director of a USAID funded project in Senegal where we're trying to um, create a, a national youth development program and also focused on youth entrepreneurship. So my, my background is in adult education and non-formal education. I went to grad school at Cornell and um, I've been here at Virginia Tech since 2013. It's a, an amazing place to get to focus on evaluation. And um, I'm also a member of AEA and also the Eastern Evaluation Research Society. Very much love my evaluation community. Um, it's so vibrant and uh, constantly learning from, from folks across the field. So, so yeah. Great. You know, there's so much there that we could talk about, but I wanted to start off with the value of thinking. Um, you know, related to, I guess, uh, evaluation capacity building development. But let's talk about evaluative thinking. Um, can you explain kind of like the standing on one foot, um, you know, as they say, uh, version of uh, what, like, what is the essence of evaluative thinking? Like, what is that? Sure. Yeah. And, and I think right at the outset, it's important to say that um, I've, I've come to realize that there's two overlapping ways of framing the answer to this question. Um, I think on one hand, evaluative thinking is a fundamental philosophical concept at the heart of what evaluation is as a, as a transdiscipline, as a, as a domain, as a field, whatever, as a cognitive activity. Um, and then on, on the other hand, it's, it's also a way of approaching evaluation capacity building or capacity development. Um, so it's, it's a way of thinking about how to unleash the power of inquiry across all of an organization's functioning. So that, I mean, it's the same thing, it's just two different perspectives on it and, and they overlap for sure. Um, I came to this focus uh, along with my colleagues, Jane Buckley and Guy Chirac especially. So Jane Buckley is an independent consultant based in Rochester, New York, and Guy Chirac is the global um, lead for, for learning uh, with Catholic Relief Services. And the, the three of us really approached this through doing evaluation capacity building work, where we realized that some, some people seem to just get it. So, right, a program implementer who, who has a, a few evaluation responsibilities as part of their role. And when we do a workshop with them, it just clicks. And so we asked ourselves, what is it about these people? And Jane originally said, well, it's because they're evaluative thinkers. And I, at the time, was a grad student. So what does one do? A lit search. So I went to the literature and found that people had been 
really um, using this word with increasing frequency. This was around 2008, 2010, but it was still quite fuzzy. Uh, and even in, in 2010, Michael Quinn Patton said it was a term along with evaluation culture, uh, which risked becoming sort of an empty buzzword, something people just throw around. Mm -hmm. so, so we really set out to try to figure out what is this thing? And that's, that's where we, we came across, uh, we eventually elucidated a, a definition uh, that really focused on um, the relationship between this concept with critical thinking, which, which is still a bit fuzzy. Uh, we can talk about that. What is the relationship between those two ideas? Yeah. Uh, for us, it really boils down to valuing evidence and um, identifying and questioning assumptions, posing thoughtful questions, taking multiple perspectives, and then also um, preparing to make better decisions. So it's certainly not thinking for thinking's sake. It's thinking for better management, better programming. Um, and and on, the, on the sort of philosophical fundamental concept at the heart of evaluation, it has a lot to do with what, uh, for instance, Deborah Fournier, uh, Michael Scriven, others have discussed in terms of the logic of evaluation, Jane Davidson as well, especially. Um, you know, that, that first step logic that, that we teach many of our students, uh, it, it has a lot to do with that. And, and um, there's been a re renewed focus, I think. I mean, it's been obviously part of the field for a long time, but renewed focus on the role of values and valuing. And so, you know, if you're saying evaluative thinking, it certainly highlights the, the valuing uh, aspect of the work, which, which, uh, maybe something that sets this way of thinking apart from from interesting other of things. so making judgments about uh, what uh, about value about whether or not something should be continued or not it's not just about methodological rigor but actually making recommendations that sort of debate that was that was going on for quite a period of time that seems to have been somewhat settled at least within our community but i don't know maybe maybe it hasn't been it's, um, yeah, it's still it's still it's still a bit open and it's um, and Jane and I have been talking about this a lot recently. It's e even if the evaluator or the program implementer is not making that summative value judgment synthesis statement at the end, there are clearly smaller value judgments that that occur all throughout an evaluative process. And I think framing an evaluation in, in, or even framing program management in terms of evaluative thinking helps bring those to the fore a little bit. And it also helps us just avoid the, uh, the fallacy of, of value-free social science, especially in this current era where yeah. the, really the role of evaluative inquiry in trying to attain social justice is, is, is more explicit I think being explicit about values and value judgments, not just about the pure merit, worth, or significance of a program, but also about some of the ethical aspects of evaluation practice and programming. Um, th this approach helps bring that to the fore as well. Do you think, so you see, uh, you, you, like if you went to, let's say, you know, a large, you know, corporation, military army, you know, uh, you know, Google, whatever it might be, would you see them use evaluative thinking, but not call, call it that? And what would you sort of, what would they call it? Yeah, a, it's, it's, uh, that's, that's a I good thought question. about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think first, certainly they, they are using it. Um, 
and in some cases, perhaps using it better or to, to greater effect than, than many nonprofits or community-based organizations, or even, you know, e even if they have a culture of evaluation. And um, even though certainly they call it something different, and I think where, they're, where, where that can be risky is that they don't, they're, they're not aware of the rich tapestry and, and, and long history of thinking about evaluative thinking that exists within our field of program evaluation or of evaluation writ large. And so they may be missing some of the, some of the methodological nuance about how to do this type of, of thinking and inquiry and also certainly some of the ethical components, um, for instance, that people like Ernie House have been talking about since at least, uh, you know, over 35 years. Um, and, and that's potentially dangerous. But what they're doing well is using rapid cycles of inquiry, you know, good, good management practices, um, I think are almost a, a truer application of Campbell's experimenting society than we often see in the nonprofit or community-based education world where they, they have a lot of data, they use it, they learn from it, they make rapid tweaks of programs. Um, I also really commend John Gargani for trying to bridge this gap between the whole impact investing B corporation uh, world with yeah. innovation. Um, and Julian King as well has done amazing work at, you know, because there are all sorts of folks, including in, in the private sector and corporate, the corporate world, who are thinking about how to understand impact and use data to understand impact. But they don't even know that evaluation is a thing. That's right. And yeah. uh, so John and, and Julian and others have worked to bridge that gap. Because if you can do, for instance, value for money evaluation with an evaluative thinking component, which does bring in more reflective and ethical uh, considerations, then I think everyone would be better served. So we in the sort of helping professions have a lot to learn from, from corporate approaches and, and vice versa. Yeah. Interesting to see how they have an alternative uh, a corporate uh, uh, setup or structure now. Uh, uh, it's what, what is it called again? It's a, uh, uh, it, it's uh, something like a, a uh, it's not a nonprofit uh, type. Uh, it's sort of like between nonprofit and for-profit where there's a promotion of, uh, of general good. And I'd be interested to see how the value of thinking can, can work within that, uh, that space. Absolutely. Um, you know, especially, and, and then in terms of the companies, you know, having them, uh, corporations, you know, obviously they're concerned with the bottom line, but also looking at like true costs, um, accounting, looking at, at, uh, extern externalities, external costs, which are, are, uh, affecting us all, but not being accounted for. Right, absolutely. Um, which, uh, which we see, it's sort of a daily uh, thing that we can see. Does um, evaluative thinking, is it something we should promote in the general public? Like right now we see, you know, all the, all the issues around uh, really just sort of clear thinking and, and that uh, can be quite frustrating, I think, for some of us. Um, is it evaluative thinking or is it really more critical thinking that we need to promote in the general public or is it something else or, or, or uh, am I... Am I, or am I going down that the wrong way? No, it's a, it's a great question. And I think the short answer is yes, it is something that we should promote among the general public. Um, there's a, a really great article uh, by Tom Schwant, I believe it was in 2008, called uh, Educating for an Intelligent Belief in Evaluation. 
And in that, of, of course, long before the current era, where we, I think we didn't realize, few people realized how bad it could get in terms of the discourse, at least in the United States, but elsewhere as well around truth and uh, facts and, you know, general understanding of, of the, 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 the norms of discourse around what is, what is an acceptable utterance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right justified you know i think between two that we if we thought it was bad in 2008 it's it's much worse now um and in that article he he focuses a lot on implications for preparing young and emerging evaluators so people who are learning evaluation but he's also very explicit that this pertains to the general citizenry that you know people just everywhere and and it's and it's a way of trying to understand the social role of evaluation as a profession, but then also as a way of thinking. Um, Carol Weiss spoke about this as well. Um, and it's, um, I think when we grapple with whether it's evaluative thinking or critical thinking, it's, it's, it's very hard to say because even the, I, I myself am not yet quite clear on the distinction between those two concepts. Uh, the same with reflective practice, as you have mentioned before. Um, Anne Vo and Tom Schwant and others who have done a lot of great work on, on evaluative thinking as well, certainly put the, the value judgment component at, as a major difference. Right, right. Uh, and that, and that, is, that is something, there's something to be said for that for sure. Um, interestingly, you know, uh, Tom Schwant in his 2015 book, uh, evaluation Foundations Revisited, Cultivating a Life of the Mind for Practice, which I highly recommend, great book. Um, he has a, actually a, a section which, which the, the heading is evaluative thinking requires critical thinking. And then back in 1984 or so, Michael Scriven, who we all know and love from evaluation, but in the broader world, he's actually better known for his work on critical thinking. Mm -hmm. In 1984, he wrote that critical thinking requires evaluative thinking. So we have a sort of circular logic here where one informs the other and vice versa, which I guess is philosophically possible, but it does uh, somewhat problematize the, the uh, boundaries between those two concepts. So they're, they're, they're clearly related, but they're also clearly different. Uh, I think they're different in some ways. Regardless, the public needs both of them. And the, the four-step evaluation logic that, uh, for instance, Scriven and Fournier and Davidson would put very much at the heart of evaluative thinking, I think would benefit the general public when they're reading a poll or reading a news article online or evaluating information about, about COVID vaccines or something like that. Um, it, it's, it's something, it's critical thinking plus, plus something else. Yeah. So to get back to the short answer, yes. And um, and I, I think that's why it's more important today than ever. You, it reminds me of Scriven's rewording of Hume's aphorism. The uh, reason it, Hume said, uh, reason is and ought to be uh, the slave of the passions, never pretend to uh, any other office than to serve and obey them. Reworded it to reason is often the slave of the passions today, but tomorrow only comes if it rules them in terms of mm -hmm. like the existential aspect that's uh, that we're facing in humanity and our, our challenges. So I, I, I think kind of, kind of see the, the importance of uh, not uh, 
maybe now more than ever, or certainly now it's, it's very, yeah, maybe always, but certainly now. Yeah, definitely. Um, you wrote with your colleagues in the uh, critically reflective evaluator article that uh, article published in the, in the new directions for evaluation edition on evaluative thinking that reflective practice is important uh, to uh, supporting evaluative thinking among evaluators. Um, I'm wondering what specific approaches you might suggest that evaluators can use to build a reflective practice. So thing, you know, when I say approaches, I mean, things we could do, it might just be ways of thinking. It might be general. I, I don't know anything really. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, there's, I, I'm very encouraged that a lot of uh, really great minds in evaluation are thinking about reflective practice. Uh, Tiffany Smith, for instance, is one who's been focusing on this a lot lately. Um, and yeah, for me, so firstly, it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking and um, so getting back to Schwant, you know, he, he has been, I think, rightly preoccupied for a long time with how evaluators are, are taught, how they're prepared. And in, in a nutshell, his concern is that if we approach evaluation as a purely technical endeavor, um, whereby we, we wrongly think that the, the dominant epistemology for evaluation is technical rationality, uh, then we risk falling into a trap of um, not doing justice to what this profession, what this work can, can, can and should do in the world. So technical rationality uh, was introduced or at least discussed by Argus and Schoen in their, in their work on, on reflective practice. And um, this relates to the subtitle of Schwann's 2015 book, Cultivating a Life of the Mind for Practice, which is a phrase I just love. Um, and so technical rationality is the epistemology that dominates most professional practice today and is the, one of the reasons why the whole evidence-based program movement was able to gain so much traction in so many professions, um, including criminal justice and, and, and medicine and and poverty reduction and, and really education, lot, lots of different domains. Because there, there's this notion that practice entails the uh, application of rigorous knowledge, scientific knowledge or technique or, or techni, as in, in Aristotelian uh, epistemology would have it, to problems of, of practice. And I think any practitioner who's ever taken a moment to think about their work, and, and they all do, all practitioners do think about their work, they would tell you that that's not what they do. It's, it's not. Practice is not just the place where scientific knowledge is applied. It's, it's much more nuanced and messy and complex than that. Um, so when we're teaching evaluation or preparing evaluators, if it's just focused on the technical know-how, or if it's just a three- three-hour short course that someone in the field is taking. Um, you know, those courses are good and necessary, but they're not sufficient uh, because uh, people also, as Schwann has said, need to realize that they need to learn about the, the moral and ethical uh, implications and, and ins and outs of their, of their work. Uh, it's been described by a few as practical wisdom, including Ernie House. He's talked about the role of practical wisdom um, and, and actually, Marta Herto and I are working on a project around this concept. Um, so that's why reflective practice is important in evaluation. It helps uh, 
hedge against the risk of seeing evaluation as a purely technical rationalistic endeavor. So then how to do it? Well, there are, there are some very, uh, it could be ironic, but some almost mechanical uh, approaches that one can use in, in practicing evaluation. So it's, um, and in our evaluative thinking workshops, Jane and I list a number of, of um, practices, approaches, tips and tricks that, that people in organizations can do and this, this is more on the program implementer side, but it's very much in line with what a, a professional evaluator could do. And that is just things like make, explicitly making time for reflection inside of the evaluative work. So if there's monthly meetings, you reserve 10, 10 minutes at the end of each meeting to do an assumption audit, where you, you write down on a flip chart paper or on a shared screen, what, what were the, some of the assumptions that you heard your colleagues making or you yourself made during this meeting? Which of them require further evidence to check their veracity or which of them are safe for us to just go based on that? Um, you know, there are, there are um, opportunities for evaluators and program impl implementers to, to, to journal or to even use art space methods to try to hit the pause button and, and approach their work in a different way. Um, graphically representing one's work in, in programs, whether it be through collaboratively creating a theory of change diagram or, or using drawing or, or photographs to represent the work, that opens up a new way of thinking about the work, which tends to foster reflective practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and the visual the, aspect of like a concept map or is that, that sort of thing, exactly. it's, yes. it's one that's a very, can be very collaborative and also uh, a creative sort of. Absolutely. Right? And it get and it gets it gets people thinking about their work in a new way. Um, I think just just on a, on a broader level, I want to give a, a shout out to the work that that Tiffany Smith and and Libby and Devin are doing on um, radical reimagining and bringing your whole self to the work. Sort of even extra evaluate. It's outside of evaluation. I think it pertains to to. Um, everything, uh, but it's particularly important in, in relation to this conversation of how and why to do more reflective practice in, in evaluation. Yeah, you know, these, re these uh, resources or these different uh, endeavor, these different uh, projects you're talking about, we, I need to follow up with them. We, we've been working on um, thinking about how mindfulness can, can help to support evaluation or how it's related mindfulness practice, informal and, and uh, formal practices. And we're when you're speaking about reflective uh, questions, there's a work in medicine, actually Epstein and his colleagues did. Uh, and and the there's an evaluation book that, that noted this actually. Um, I don't remember which one, but they, they have actually a list of questions they have physicians kind of sit with um, in order to reflect on patient encounters. We're looking at how we can modify or update those questions for evaluation. So for instance, uh, if uh, there were data that I ignored, what might they be and for the physician side? The evaluation side is what other data sources that I've not paid attention to, or what about the evaluation process or findings was surprising or unexpected? Yeah. What are my assumptions that might not be true? Right. Mm -hmm. Or even this whole, you know, this idea of like, you know, let's assume that this intervention did not cause this outcome. What else could have caused it? Assuming that it did not. Right. Regardless of what the evidence suggests. Right. Absolutely. Um, those kind it, of things are really, they're really neat. And, and, um, I hope to use more of my own practice as well, but yeah. Yeah, and the, the mind, the, 
so many of these concepts um, over, overlap a great deal. And I, and I think that's good because we can, but each of them has their own perhaps inputs that we can add to the, mm -hmm. to the pot of soup that has all these wonderful ideas bubbling up in it. And, and so we've got, we've got a validative thinking, critical thinking, practical wisdom, reflective practice, and mindfulness. Those are the ideas that I care the most about right now. And yeah, the, I've, I've seen some of the work coming up on mindfulness and I, I think it's, it's wonderful it, it, uh, for um, two, two reasons. It also gets me thinking about the role of, of intuition in evaluation, which uh, Marta Herto has uh, recently published an article on that. And also uh, Feng Pham has done some, some research on um, and thinking about the role of intuition and evaluation. And wow. then wow. also it helps us get outside of the Euro Western dominant, yeah. uh, not just epistemology, but ontology about what is even real. What is, um, because it's so hard, so much of evaluation is, is dictated by a sort of Cartesian modernist uh, framing of reality and of knowledge and make materialist, yeah, for intuition and mindfulness, yeah, help uh, chip away at that at that hegemony of thought a little bit. And so I'm really excited to see that happening and and allow a more plur a, a plurality of ways of knowing and being, which are the which are the dominant reality in the majority worlds, right? The the so-called global south, what have you allowing indigenous methodologies from all around the world and not allowing because it's, that's it's not even the right word, but um, embracing work to be done to, to learn from those ways of knowing and thinking mm -hmm. and make evaluation better through those ways. And, and yeah. I think with mindfulness and intuition, it is one, one path to that. One thing I found it really interesting in uh, this book uh, by Tavris and Aronson, uh, mistakes were made, but not by me. They just published a new, uh, uh, a new edition. Um, it's on cognitive dissonance theory, Festinger's cognitive dissonance theory, and Aronson mm -hmm. uh, extended his, his, his Festinger's work. So one of the main ways to deal with um, cognitive dissonance and how it has its effect on our um, you know, poor decision, you know, how it impacts decision-making in a negative way um, is to just notice that dissonant feel, feeling that uncomfortable, really, he describes, they describe it as, um, as almost like a drive, like it's very like thirst, like extreme thirst or hunger, like to resolve the dissonance, something we do all the time. We're all sort of like guilty of it, but like to just sit with that dissonance rather than try to, rather than to automatically resolve it. So to become more aware of automatic processes. And then of course, Kahneman, Fersky and others, you know, talked about a lot of uh, bias that results from heuristics that are, right. you know, not that, that part. Yeah. Yeah. In that, that book by Ernie, Ernie House uh, from 2015, where he looks at practical wisdom and values and bias, he, he does a lot of um, unpacking of, of thinking fast and slow, um, which, which Feng Pham has looked at as well. And, and House really finds that both system one and system two are evaluative, which is really interesting um, that yeah. it, as evolutionary uh, roots, like how, mm -hmm. how humans evolved, um, evaluative thinking was part of both thinking fast and thinking slow. But as you were getting at the um, the dangers in belief preservation are are very real. If those, especially the the thinking fast, those cognitive limitations are left unearthed, right? That's that's how 
biases that introduce risk into, into program functioning, but also into a fair and equal society uh, can, can sometimes persist. So yeah, how we can dig into our positions uh, further. We, we see that now and, um, and just individually, just every day, you know, I, I, my dad was a smoker. He's a very smart person. He was a smoker for a long time. And he, he would, you know, question like the, you know, there's no, uh, you know, the studies are inadequate, you know, it doesn't matter that sort of they were, they were sufficient, you know, um, or that, you know, you'll see some, some, not to, to, you know, target smokers, but just one example of, of behavior that we know is like, you know, pretty bad for you. Mm-hmm. One of the examples that uh, I think Fessinger gave, or maybe it's Aronson, was this uh, idea of, okay, well, you know, smoking, it may be not that, that good, but overall it's good because it helps me to relax. So it's, you know, so finding justifications, that's sort of self-justification uh, or yeah. bias um, is something that, uh, that we do. Um, speaking of the social science, is there any other social sciences, uh, literature that informs your work? And then you're like, you know, it's something that I, I found to be really helpful in my evaluation work. Um, I've, I've asked this of a few other folks, but yeah. 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 So, so much. And, and, um, you know, in, so the textbook I use in my class is Mertens and Wilson, and they do a really great job of, uh, talking about how, how theory informs evaluation and so and there's three three bubbles which are then surrounded by paradigms and it's 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 program theory which of course goes into theories of change and logic models and then evaluation theory which is a bit elusive but as Shadish has said it, it's what makes us who we are right as, as a profession and then the third is is social theory and so the uses of social theory in evaluation are are so numerous and and for me in particular some that kind of come to the fore. Um, one uh, is um, this approach to social science that's considered phronetic social science. Uh, it, uh, Bert Fluberg uh, wrote a book about that. I forget the year, uh, but it's, it's called Making Social Science Matter. And it's, he, he build, it's been critiqued in some, in some quarters for misinterpreting some of Aristotelian epistemology, but it basically looks at um, episteme, which is like knowledge for knowledge's sake, techni, which is that practice that uh, which falls into technical rationality at times, and then phronesis, which is very closely associated with practical wisdom. So it's sort of it's sort of you know doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, and it has a strong ethical uh, component. Um, and so it it's it's. Um, it was his, his approach to, you know, thinking about social science is not value-free, which, which Scriven says all the time as well. Um, and it has the potential at, at the risk of being overly modernist and thinking like, oh, we're going to save the world. It does foreground how can social science make a positive difference in the world. So that, that's one. Um, in so much as adult education literature can and should be considered social science literature, I think it also has a lot of ways that it's informed my practice and should inform evaluation around thinking about how, how people work together in, in society to, to make change happen, to, to learn and to adapt. Um, very, oh, a, another huge way, which for me, I came to through adult education in social science 
is the, the whole role of, of power and analyzing power. So I think all evaluators should um, at least read briefly on major theorists of power, um, be they uh, Jennifer Gore, who wrote this wonderful book, The Struggle for Pedagogies, sort of looking at a, a feminist pedagogy of adult education that very much looks at how power moves throughout different community settings. Um, you know, Foucault, Giddens, Bourdieu, um, Gramsci to understand hegemony. Um, John Gaventa, who for a long time was um, both at the Highlander Folk Center and then also um, the Institute for Development Studies at Sussex, created um, with colleagues this thing called the Power Cube, which is a handy approach to understanding the three faces of power. Um, and it's, I think we, uh, we need to bring that into evaluation work more. So, so that's another, and, that, and then that sort of touches on critical theory more general, but also cultural studies. You know, the British cultural studies tradition, uh, people like Stuart Hall, we don't really know that much about that in evaluation. Um, and that's, you know, 50 years old almost now. And I think we could benefit from, from some of that. Um, there's some really exciting things happening in qualitative inquiry and also science and technology studies. So again, going back 50 years, you're talking about Bruno Latour, um, Leach, Schoons, and Wentz, folks who think about what is experience. Um, and that actually touches, it's very, you can't think about what is credible evidence, which is very important in evaluation, without touching on these notions of, of, of power and um, expertise and knowledge, really. People who study knowledge in social science ought to be informing how we do evaluation. Definitely. Well, you're giving me a lot of readings to do here. So this is uh, <laughs> great. I'll be a little light weekend reading for you there. Yeah, just a light reading. Exactly. <laughs> great. But a lot of things that I've, I've never heard of. So this is uh, really, really helpful. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I do want to say I, uh, my, my advisor, um, Butch Wilson, was yeah. the one who taught me the most about power. He, uh, sadly, he passed away. Um, but his whole career was focused on the role of power in adult education. And so I owe him a great debt of gratitude for um, it's now I can't, I can't walk into a situation without automatically trying to analyze the power uh, dynamics, seeing who's, who's winning, who's losing and why, and who's making decisions. I think that's so important. And that's part of interactive evaluation practice as well. Like, like mm -hmm. Gene King and Laurie Savon have, have talked about, it's, it's one of those less tangible skills that good evaluators have. It's uh, not a soft skill. It's, it's, an, it's an essential skill. Um, and it's a skill that can be augmented by studying social, social theories of power. For st uh, students who take an evaluation course or courses but are not studying to become evaluators, right? how would you hope they bring um, evaluative thinking or evaluation, let's say, to their future work. You know, that might be just in, in other areas that have nothing. Well, that, it's not that they don't have anything to do with evaluation. They obviously do, but but you know, in the, the various disciplines or, or areas that they that they focus on. Yeah, yeah, that's and, and that's why more and more, I, even in my teaching as well as in my professional development workshops that I offer with colleagues, I really like the idea of evaluative thinking because. Um, I think it's an approach which people can gain and then and then bring with them into whatever professional context they're going to end up in. 
Um, and it brings with it all of those other concepts that we've been discussing today. And why I think that's important is because even if their job description doesn't mention evaluation, um, or if it mentions it as the sort of last bullet point in what they do, the chances are good that they're going to be engaging with evaluative inquiry in one way, shape, or form, either um, commissioning, consuming, or working alongside the, the more formal evaluation endeavor. But, but even if not, just to, to, be, to help them be critically reflective practitioners in the field, in their context, who are able to question assumptions, pose thoughtful questions, take multiple perspectives, do power analysis, think about the ethical implications of, of doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. That's what I want them to get. And I think that's where, you know, sure, we want to make more young and emerging evaluators to, th there's a lot of potential jobs in evaluation. That's great. And I think there will be more, more of them. But the vast majority of people we interact with are going to go into other domains. And so if they could bring that with them, that element of evaluative thinking, I think that can help them do more and better, really good work in whatever domain they land in. Are we the early adopters in the diffusion of innovation cycle? The, and, and so we'll see evaluative thinking uh, talked about um, throughout industry, throughout, is that, or what, what, what do you think? Um, I think it's, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Um, that, that remains to be seen, but. Yeah, well, it's good that we're defining it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even, even though the definition that we have in our 2015 paper, we're, we're, we're also very critical of, it's quite flawed and, um, but it was the starting point, at least, and it certainly provoked a lot of uh, further learning by us and by our, our, our peers. So, can a, can evaluation save the world? Um, can it uh, can it or can it at least improve the world? Um, all the the problems that we're we're facing from global climate disruption to this information, misinformation, fake news, facty facts versus fake fat. I don't even, you know, the yeah, whole, yeah, all that. socially economic uh, inequities, all the things that we're, that we're really thinking of that are, I think very much in our, in our consciousness as well. Maybe we're always present to some degree, but very much now a part of the discussion and consciousness. What, yeah. What do you, what do you think about that? That's not an easy question to answer. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I don't think it can, but I think it can help. I think, and I think it should help. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I have a, I have a student who just in class on Tuesday, um, we, we were talking about helping, helping the world, you know, trying to make a positive yeah. difference. And, and she actually problematized that a little bit. So I'm, that's what's giving me extra pause here yeah, yeah. Responding to this question. And, and the, the reason is uh, that, so much about saving the world gets caught up in a modernist discourse of, of I mean, it's, it's almost a Fordist approach to this conveyor belt. And it's, you know, with all due respect, because I was one, right? Like the, the bright-eyed undergraduate graduate who goes off, for, in my case, to Peace Corps. I, two months after I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I was on a plane to Gabon to do the Peace Corps. Right. It was, it was the right thing to do. Actually, I still this day, I maintain it was, um, but I certainly didn't save the world, right? And evaluation can have same, the same delusions of grandeur 
And that is dangerous because it, it is um, short-sighted and sort of um, hubric, excessive pride. And, and, and it risks even in a discourse or rhetoric about complexity and, you know, which we've had an evaluation now for a while, we, you know, with Bob Williams and Michael Patton and, and, and others, it risks still overly simplifying problems and solutions, right? Like even an NGO that talks about wicked problems still ends up essentially treating simple problems. And so there's been some great work around, you know, working in NGOs and, and avoiding well, certainly, at the at the very least, we need to avoid uh, the white savior complex, which is which is prevalent in NGO work, um, both internationally and domestically. So, the danger in saying evaluation can or will save the world is falling into that, uh, as well as this just this overly modernist um, sort of teleological. We're moving towards this point of, of and and one of the problems with that is it it oftentimes uh, sort of focuses too much on, on personal agency, which is important, but at the, at the neglect of structural elements that need to be considered. Um, so that's the risk. The things that are giving me hope are new approaches that are emerging in evaluation, which are probably better suited to address these wicked problems, these challenges that, that we ought to try to address. I mean, the, the alternative is, is, is apathy, which I think is not an option, or mm -hmm. asceticism, uh, which could be an option, um, but, uh, you know, sort of moving to a cabin in the woods and just living that way and having a life of the mind, but not a life of practice. So the alternative is to try to act and to try to act well and um, in evaluation, I think absolutely the, of course, all the, the long history of work on culturally responsive evaluation is, is one promising approach, which more recently is uh, related to the equitable evaluation initiative that Jaradine Coffey and others have been leading. I think that is absolutely crucial and ought not to be just side, a sideshow, but ought anyone doing any evaluation anywhere if they can't speak to how and in what ways they're uh, engaging with and applying the equitable evaluation principles, then it's quite possible or quite likely that they're doing bad evaluation and should probably stop. Another one is of course, blue marble evaluation, which Michael Quinn Patton and others have been leading, which it's, it's in, in order to, so we need societal transformation if humans are gonna survive much longer, to be frank. Um, and as, as Patton has said, in order to evaluate transformation, we need to transform evaluation. Um, but even it's sort of ironic and at the risk of an endless sort of, uh, fractal of self-critique, because that's not productive either. Um, I'm already seeing people who really inspire me wondering, do we need to transform the transformation of evaluation? So for instance, across the African continent, there are a lot of scholars and practitioners and activists, um, many of whom are associated with the Clear Anglophone Africa group. They've been doing this great webinar series on tr essentially transforming the transformation of evaluation in Africa. So 
what is it going to look like when made in Africa evaluation or indigenous African epistemologies are, are, are become, become the norm and material implications follow, meaning African evaluation firms are hired and African funders are funding the evaluation and it can be done ideally, it's, it's a bit idealistic, but outside of the neo-imperial, uh, neoliberal and patriarchal structures that dominate society globally today. So um, I think equitable evaluation and blue marble are, are making great progress. Um, and yet there's still another wave coming, uh, building on those, I think. And we don't know what that is yet. But it's only in framing it that way that we can ever honestly answer the question, can evaluation save the world? I mean, I think evaluation on its own cannot, but it, I think it has a role to play in making the world better, right? I, I do not agree with Bill Fear, who said that evaluation should not be a force for change. I, um, I don't know why I would do evaluation if I didn't think it was a force for change. Right. I don't think it should be a force for negative change because I don't want to be evil. So the only option left is to use evaluation as a force for positive change. Otherwise, I'm moving to a cabin in the woods. So I'm going to keep doing evaluation with friends and colleagues who share this idea that it can be a force for positive change in the world. I think humbly realizing that it can't save the world, but learning from these new approaches and contributing to them and the, the power and just lifeblood of young and emerging evaluators across the globe is what gives me the most hope. Um, there's this powerful network through Eval Youth and all of the various uh, voluntary organizations, professional evaluators of VOPES yeah. of the world with people in their 20s, sometimes younger, sometimes older, who are, who are the future today of evaluation. Um, and that pertains to evaluation theory and practice and praxis know that intersection of theory and practice and that's what gives me hope that evaluation can in fact make a positive difference in the world beautiful thank you do you uh what do you what do you think about the uh, the u.s response to the covid19 do you wonder um about how evaluative thinking or evaluation could influence our response uh, at a personal level at every sort of system sort of level right yeah um, and very specific, you know, it's something that, you know, the CDC just had a, a couple webinars, uh, that, that group on, um, uh, on this, mm -hmm. uh, well, on uh, evaluating COVID response in different communities. Um, I mean, they talked about the Seattle response and so forth, but uh, I'm wondering, uh, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, I think getting back to the paper by Schwant that I mentioned earlier, Educating for an Intelligent Belief and Evaluation, there's no greater testament to the importance of that point than I think the U.S.'s response to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and and it's, it shows that it's broader than just being data literate. Of course, you know, there's never been so many graphs and data visualizations on people's timelines on social media as, as there have been in the era of COVID as everyone watches the rates and tries to compare, you know, what's the best measure of, of, of this. So, so that's important on one level, but then the broader level has to do with the fact that Fauci is getting death threats, right? He's been the leading infectious disease 
scientist in the US for decades, and now he's getting death threats. So that's not about data literacy, that's about values and an understanding of the role of information and science in the uh, steering of, of public life. It's a strange... Yeah, people making those death threats, there's a, there's a bit of a, like a sort of delusional aspect, sort of like it almost, it crosses into the mental health sort of aspect, right? But we've seen this repeatedly throughout history where it's um, these, a lot of these delusions get accepted as norms. Um, yeah, and, and in the, and in the you know, 1918, the, the, the earlier flu pandemic, there was a whole anti-mask movement. So it's true, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, yeah. It's, it's a sort of coming around, going around, going around thing. Uh, although in this information age with the rapid flow of information and misinformation, I yeah. think it's on a different tenor, a different speed, different tone. Um, and evaluation alone cannot, cannot save, can, you know, cannot address that. But it, it certainly has, has a role, um, especially when framed as evaluative thinking, because that is much further, farther outside the bounds of what's commonly thought of as professional evaluation. So yeah, it's strange times with some historical precedent. The more people who can do evaluative thinking, the better. You speak to it before, but when, you know, evaluative thinking also is a term that speaks to well thinking. There's like the intuitive, the intuition um, aspect, intuitive aspect um, is sort of maybe not as emphasized there when we say thinking, right? Um, right. And so what are the other aspects, um, other factors that, that play a role in, in the beliefs that people maintain, the biases that they maintain, and, and it's sort of ignoring information regardless um, uh, you know, or, or, or even, or just not entertaining or, or, or coming to an evaluative thinking approach because of those biases, like just shutting down, you know, right, right off the bat. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it does, it does actually in an ironic, almost paradoxical way, um, touch on the sort of some, some things which science and technology scholars and post-structuralist, post-modernist social scientists, have, uh, social commentators have been saying for a while. Um, and it's, it's, so it's, you know, uh, not to the extent of the, the so-called hoax, right? Where it's sort of mocking uh, post-structuralist inquiry, but realizing it's so, so we have on display in the public sphere right now, an extreme distrust in expertise and in scientific knowledge and in fact, the fact value dichotomy. So social scientists, you know, when you asked earlier about how does social science inform my practice, for instance, social scientists have written hundreds of thousands of pages about those topics. Uh, it's now on us to think about how, how, does that, how does that help us understand this current phenomenon? Um, it's, it's not easy, but it's, it's interesting, right? Like, so I, I'm a strong believer in basically in philosophy and sociology of science and in the role of social construction in scientific knowledge. But that doesn't mean that you should be giving death threats to the leading uh, you know, infectious disease specialist. That's, there's, there's a difference there. So that's, that's interesting to, to think about. Um, and 
Yeah, it's, I mean, the intersection of intuition and rational thought and belief preservation is, is something that we really, really need to focus on um, if we're going to try to help out at all. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for, for taking that question on. Um, which, let me ask you a, a, another question. So, uh, which book do you uh, like to give as a gift and why? Um, well, or do you I, recommend if you don't give, if maybe you don't give gifts. Yeah, I should, I should give more books as gifts actually now that you mention it. Um, okay. um, but, uh, let's see. So a books I recommend, um, well, if, if you will allow me to say more than one, uh, yeah, of course. So already in this conversation, I've mentioned two evaluation books a couple, couple times. Uh, one is Ernie house, um, uh, on, Let's see, I've got it right here, actually. Evaluating Values, Biases, and Practical Wisdom. Um, so this is really good. It's a, it's a little book. This is 2015. Um, and Ernie House is a great writer and great thinker and great person. Um, and uh, that's a great topic vis-a-vis -vis what you and I have been talking about today. Right. The other one I mentioned quite a few times was Schwant's uh, Evaluation Foundations Revisited Cultivating a Life of the Mind for Practice also 2015. So those are, those are two among others that I recommend in evaluation. Um, more broadly, um, sort of probably my favorite book, and this is typical for people who are enamored by critical theory and adult education, but that would be, of course, Paulo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which is a difficult read. Um, I, I wish I could read it in the original uh, Portuguese, but because uh, I believe it'd be even more poetic. But um, so it was literally the first book I put on my bookshelf when I moved into my office in 2013. And um, it was the book that helped me uh, firm up my understanding of my own vocation in terms of community education. Um, so, and, and uh, through Michael Patton and others, there's been a good bit of writing actually about the importance of Frarian pedagogy in evaluation. So folks... Yeah that up and read a bit more about that and then one one concentric circle out um, a book that I read long ago but that I recommend to people and that I think also is pertinent given our conversation uh, is by Parker Palmer and it's a book about vocation um, and it's called um, Let Your Life Speak um, actually the exact title Let Your Life Speak Listening for the Voice of Vocation and that was from 1999. And it's a, it's a great book for anyone who's seeking to have a life of fulfillment and a life of meaning where they can bring their full self. Uh, it has a lot to do with mindfulness. You know, Parker Palmer is uh, rooted in the Quaker tradition of, of mindfulness and of having a life with purpose where you don't force yourself into some notion of success that, that the external world is um, projecting onto you and you don't force your, you don't force your inner self into finding a vocation, but you let your life speak and then you come to it. So when I think about books to recommend, uh, at the broadest level, it would be that one. It reminds me of Joseph Campbell's follow your bliss sort of, uh, uh saying the, um, how, how should people, yeah, really appreciate you, you, you doing this here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It really yeah, is. Very busy. Uh, how, how should people stay in touch with you, the work you're doing, uh, you know, social 
handles, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, and, uh, anyone can feel free to email me at any time. We can we can post my email address. Um, but also, a good way is Twitter. I am I am probably too active on Twitter. <laughs> it's it's both a time sink, but also a great way to connect. Uh, you know, I think it was it was probably Anne Emery or Stephanie Evergreen or Chris Lacey who convinced me uh, to get on Twitter back in, you know, maybe 2013. Um, and they were right. You know, it's a way of sort of being at an evaluation conference every day, as, as well as picking up other information from great scholars um, and activists. So people, I'm TG Archibald on Twitter. Um, folks can, can, can connect with me there. I do have a blog uh, called Free Range Evaluation. Yeah inspired by a quote from from gene king i I love gene king um who said basically that you know the ultimate goal of evaluation capacity building is free-range evaluation which she described as evaluative thinking that lives unfettered in an organization so i named blog free-range evaluation um it's uh the last six months or so it's been mostly about anti-racism work so which is clearly important you know we can't do good evaluation without being anti-racist um, and then there's also a good bit in there, as one would expect, on evaluative thinking. So folks can can follow me there as they well. Can, they can sign up for that newsletter or the blog or, to get yes. it, or they can just, uh, yeah, there's an email that goes out periodically. Yes, okay. they can subscribe to that blog. If they and want. then you're on LinkedIn as well. Uh, maybe not. As I active. am on LinkedIn. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, so appreciate this this time here. It's kind of flown by. Um, <laughs> but really, really appreciate it. Great uh, conversation, great ideas there. And uh, I'll be uh, reading a lot of what you've talked about. And I think uh, this, uh, this will be helpful for a lot of the evaluators and others. Um, so. I hope so. I hope so. And, and thank you so much again for inviting me. You know, it's, it's not every day that one gets to just have a conversation like this and then hopefully let it inform others thinking. So it's, it truly is an honor and a joy. I've, I've really enjoyed this time. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Great. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.